So the subtitle of this particular study, Characters, Controversies, and Conflict in the Story of Christianity, is really going to hit home tonight because the era that we're going to enter tonight is the Reformation era. So you can see here, uh, we've gone through the Christian Middle Ages. We're only hitting some of the highlights of different individuals and events. Uh, but this era here of the age of the Reformation from 1517 to 1648, I think we might be most familiar with that era of uh, church history simply because uh, the personalities are so large in this era of time. And depending upon what our religious background is, we might have heard some of the history of Lutheranism or um, you know, Presbyterianism, that type of thing. Uh, Methodism doesn't come really until the next era under the age of revival under the Wesley brothers and that type of thing. But uh, in this era here, what we're going to see is uh, there are a lot of people that are bigger than life. And with that comes a lot of friction uh, there are people on all different levels here that are involved, whether they're kings, popes, priests, monks, different uh, people in the dynamic of the church that are all kind of trying to find their way. Uh, remember in the last age that we looked at, um, we talked a little bit, not last week, but the week before, uh, during this era of the age of Christian Roman Empire, there were councils, Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, as they are trying to formulate what they think is orthodox theology. Well, a lot of that takes a uh, turn southward uh, as you get into the Middle Ages, and then there's the desire for reform that takes place during this period of time. So uh, our picture for tonight, I've been associating each age with a picture, is um, Martin Luther. And as he stands before those in power, uh, he gives an account of why he is changing his viewpoint on certain things. But there's a little bit of lead up to that. So I want to introduce that by reminding you of the turning point so far uh, that has kind of led us to the age of the Reformation. We said last week that the coronation of Charles the Great, also in French Charlemagne, uh, started to anticipate um, the rising power of the papacy and kind of the merging together of uh, civil and religious authority. Then uh, we saw that growing authority in the church um, also had to deal with certain things like the invasion of the barbarians, which led to a, a societal structure called feudalism. And in that pyramid that I showed you last week, of course, the king is on the top, but the bishops are uh, just below that, and then the commoners are even farther down. Last week, we talked also about the rise of Islam, and that became... Uh, concern, especially in the East. Uh, the Eastern and Western Church uh, had split a little bit over different issues, and the East feels the pressure in Jerusalem and those areas of Islamic invasion. So to stem the tide of that, um, the Crusades take place 
uh, last week. And of course, with that comes a lot of violence, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of loss of life. And that will lead to the church taking advantage of of the vulnerabilities of people that have lost loved ones with the selling of indulgences, the promise of getting loved ones out of purgatory, that type of thing. So when you begin to look at the momentum that's starting to grow for the church, uh, remember this, that uh, the power and wealth of the church in this previous era had a lot, lot to do with allies, with uh, those that are kings and rulers. And there's a merging uh, together of both the religious and the political. What we also find is that the church was gaining more land acquisition. And with the um, purchase of land comes the power of the control of that land, whether it's the building of cathedrals or for other uses as well. So that's what we kind of saw last week. Tonight, though, uh, we're going to see that there are going to be some people that push back on that. And we call it the Reformation because they wanted to reform uh, the Catholic Church. And uh, here is a picture of Martin Luther, a drawing of Ma Martin Luther, obviously. And sometimes we think of him and John Calvin as the two big reformers. But I want you to notice here, there is really kind of four major traditions that come out of the Protestant Reformation. One is Lutheranism, obviously, with Martin Luther. Second is Reformed, which is associated with John Calvin. But a subset of that eventually makes its way over to our shores uh, at the beginning of the history of our country, in the Puritans that hold to Calvinistic theology. Then you have Anabaptists, which are very different than the Lutherans and the Reformed. Uh, and then the Anglican Church, uh, the church as it grows in England, is kind of a mediating church between Catholic and Protestantism, kind of trying to find the middle ground. And um, what we'll find is over the next several hundred years, there's a lot of bloody struggles that do take place between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, there'd be some individuals that would be accused of being heretics. Some of them actually lost their life. Some of them were burned at the stake. Some of them were decapitated. Uh, a lot of violence uh, during this era of time. So the place to begin, though, is with this man, Martin Luther. And it's an interesting story. When you look at his history, he was given a nickname uh, by the Pope at the time. Uh, he was an individual that was called a wild boar in the vineyard. So in 1520, as you can see here, um, the Catholic Church issued a papal bull or decree is another way of saying it that there was the invasion of an individual that could really disrupt um, the power that they had. And it's a long story, really, but um, Martin Luther would eventually be condemned for 41 different uh, beliefs that he had. 
and they were considered heretical. And it all began really on October the 10th, 1520, uh, by being called a, a boar in the vineyard when Luther would take some of his students in uh, Wittenberg, Germany, and uh, burn the copies of the canon law that was issued uh, by the papacy and would even burn some of the works of different medieval theologians. And that were that really kind of became the spark, if you will, uh, that would rage throughout Germany and move into other countries as a symbol of defiance against the Pope. And so now Protestantism, as it begins, at least initially, um, it's beginning with a desire of revising Catholicism. There was never a, a real desire by Martin Luther or other reformers, for that matter, to uh, actually break away from the Catholic Church, but they did want to reform it. And it, it usually revolved around these four questions you see at the bottom of the slide. How is a person saved? Who holds religious authority? What exactly is the church? Is it separate from politics? Is it combined with uh, the king and so forth? And then what is the essence of Christian living? How are those who call themselves Christian to uh, live out their life? Now, in order to understand why this became such a big issue, you need to understand the conversion experience of Martin Luther. So let's go back a little bit. He was born in 1483. He was the son of a minor, uh, and he wanted to become a lawyer. But in 1505, as he was walking to Soderheim, he was struck by a bolt of lightning. And it so terrified him that in the moment, Luther cried out to St. Anne. Now, let me pause there and say, you can see now some of the Catholicism is already beginning to elevate certain saints. And some of those saints were mediators uh, in some ways. So uh, some people will pray to St. Christopher, some to St. Joseph. In this case, he cries out to St. Anne, uh, and he, she says, if my life would be spared, uh, I will enter the monastery. Now, this goes back and remember that some different monasteries have started. And he chose to keep his promise uh, by entering an Augustinian monastery. So Augustine of Hippo, that goes back a couple of weeks, uh, is really the predecessor in some of his theology to John Calvin. And um, he began pushing himself with great dedication in the monastery. And he was dedicated to different rituals of prayer and fasting. But he carried a lot of shame and he carried a lot of guilt. And none of these different spiritual practices relieved him of that burden that he was carrying. So eventually, what happened is he began to read the scriptures. And as he began to read the scriptures in the year 1515, he came across Romans chapter 1, verse 17. I'll read it for us. In Romans 1, 17, well, I'll read verse 16. That begins kind of the, the thought. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, 
and to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And that was kind of like a light bulb that came on, that he doesn't need to do all of these works, um, that it is by simple faith that God would declare him uh, right with him, uh, and uh, a technical term that would be used later by John Calvin is justification, that he'd be justified in the eyes of God by having uh, faith. And so he concluded, basically, that people are saved from the wrath of God through the merit of Christ. And that was that was really a, a light bulb moment for him, because growing up within the Catholic monastery, everything was kind of dependent upon works. And so this freed him from this guilt and burden that he was carrying around. And um, he then began to say, there are people that uh, need to have the same type of freedom that I have. But what he found was a system in place that was actually taking advantage of people and their fears. So as the Crusades uh, began to make their way into various parts of the world, of course, there's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of loss of life. And people back home were afraid of their uh, loved one and um, the judgment that they might encounter in the uh, eyes of God. And the Catholic Church took advantage of that. And what they began to do is sell indulgences, that they would guarantee the absolution of sin through an economic transition, or transaction rather, uh, to the church. So this idea was in exchange for mediation, uh, if you give money, then uh, you, your loved one will be guaranteed an entrance into heaven and uh, they will actually get out of purgatory. Now, we haven't talked about that, but that is a, uh, a theological belief that uh, developed where there is this holding place uh, th that kind of burns off the sin of a person, and uh, eventually they would get out of this holding place, and they could be um, uh, let into heaven after their impurities um, were resolved. So these things come together, and Luther, after reading Romans 1.17, said, that's not true. The righteous are justified by faith. And uh, as a result of that, Luther began to uh, talk on that, uh, through a lot of his sermons and his teachings, and he began influencing his students on that as well. Um, he really was displeased with the picture of this guy here. His name is uh, John Tetzel. He was a Dominican that um, he was the individual that was kind of the fundraiser for the Pope. And what I mean by that is through the selling of indulgences, he was trying to raise funds for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, but he had this little jingle that he used as a way of, uh, as a selling point, 
for um, people to contribute. He used to say, as soon as the coin and the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now, obviously, he's not saying that in English, but um, the idea is when you hear the coin, the coin hit the metal, that is when you know that your loved one has been set free from purgatory. So do you have some thoughts there? Uh, any questions or comments on any of that? So Martin Luther decides to write a proposition that he wanted to post actually for theological debate. And so on Halloween of 1517, um, he followed a tradition, and that is anything that would be up for de debate would be posted on the castle door, the church door. And um, in this case here, it's in the city of uh, Wittenberg. And this has been uh, has come to be known the 95 Thesis. Um, with this, though, he ignited a fire that couldn't be extinguished. Um, there were different Vatican theologians that tried to issue counter arguments to uh, the different theses that he wrote about. Um, and all of them came to the conclusion that uh, Luther was a heretic. Now, to be deemed a heretic uh, could uh, risk not only arrest and imprisonment, but potentially loss of life as well. So uh, to be deemed a heretic, again, going back to that idea of proto-orthodoxy that we talked a little bit about, that the majority view became the orthodox view, and then anyone that steered away from that particular viewpoint was con considered a heretic. Well, uh, Luther would engage with these uh, Vatican theologians, but one thing that he insisted on is if he was going to debate them on these various things is that he wanted scriptural proof for why they believed what they believed. And so there was an 18-day debate that took place this couple of years later. So again, we tend to streamline everything and crunch it together uh, just so we can get a handle on. But you can see time has passed and there's an 18-day debate that takes place in 1519. Nothing is really uh, established there. I think there is uh, ongoing debate. And what uh, we find is that Luther really felt through uh, these arguments that the church was in what he called a Babylonian captivity. Now, we're familiar with that from the Old Testament, right? The nation of Israel went into Babylon for almost 70 years and um and it's there that they long to get back to their homeland and to exercise Judaism without uh, interruption and without interference. Well, Luther argumented that basically the seven sacraments that had been developed by the Catholic Church was holding individual Christians captive because they were dependent upon the church uh, for these sacraments, and there was no freedom. And so he called this the Babylonian captivity of the church. And the thing that he really attacked the papacy on um, was this idea that you needed the priesthood, you needed the priesthood if you wanted to go before God. 
And uh, so, um, you know, that made people dependent upon the church and upon the pope and upon the priests and stuff. And one thing that he would write about uh, is what's called the uh, priesthood of the believer, that every believer has the right to go before God in prayer. You don't need an intermediary that um, each individual has this freedom to go before God. Well, in 1521, Pope Leo X issued a another papal decree condemning Luther, and he is excommunicated from the church. And um, what we find is that there's all kinds of issues that begin to develop, even things to that are so, I don't want to call it minute, but I mean, in the big picture of things, I guess, you know, some things you go, really, we're debating about this? Let me give you one example. So the sacrament of communion was very important to the Catholic Church, um, and they believed uh, in what is called uh, transubstantiation, that when the priest would, uh, would um, dedicate uh, the host, uh, the bread and the cup, that the bread and the cup actually turned into the body and the blood of Christ. That's called transubstantiation, that uh, when people are partaking of the bread and the cup, they're actually eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. Luther believed in what was called consubstantiation. And consubstantiation is no, it's still bread, it's still wine, but the presence of Jesus is in those elements. Now, in, in contemporary evangelicalism, uh, both of those would be kind of looked down upon. Um, for contemporary evangelicals, it's simply an act of remembrance using the bread and the cup. But Luther believed that it doesn't turn completely into the blood and body of Jesus, but the presence of Jesus is in the elements. Does that make sense? There's a little bit of difference there. So there was a lot of heated debate that was going on with those different types of issues. So finally, um, there, there is a, a, an opportunity that is given to Luther uh, to defend himself. Now, he's been excommunicated uh, by the Pope, but they're going to give him an opportunity to defend himself. And in 1521, there's a gathering along the uh, Rhine River and it's called the Diet of Worms. Now, let me go to the next couple slides here. Look at this slide here. You can see a map. That's a city here, uh, Worms. Let me get that out of the way for a second. So um, that's where this uh, council will take place, where Luther will have a chance to um, defend himself. So here is Zurich down here. Um, if you know anything about Germany, you might be able to uh, place yourself as to where it is in the country. Up here is Amsterdam. Uh, but anyways, um, he will be given an opportunity uh, to defend himself. So uh, the emperor at the time is Charles V, and he calls Luther to this assembly to give an account for why he believes what he believes and um, 
when Luther refuses to recant, when he refuses to change his mind, he is then deemed an outlaw. And um, what we find is that uh, he will need to find sanctuary. Um, and so he leaves, and on his way home from um, the city of Worms, he's granted sa a sanctuary by the Prince of Saxony. Uh, his name is Duke Fred uh, Frederick in the Wartburg Castle. And it's there that he will hide out, really, for about a year. And while he was in the castle, that's where he translated the New Testament into German. And uh, that helped to continue to further the, um, the ongoing growth of the Reformation is now the now people are not dependent upon the church to interpret for them the scriptures out of latin you know now they're getting the language in to their um their own uh, vernacular so some thoughts comments or questions observations interesting history that brings us to this what i what do i think is his lasting legacy um I think in many ways, Luther had a bigger impact than just on the church, because what's going to happen is Calvin is going to kind of come out of what he started, and then uh, what we're going to find is when the Puritans came over carrying some of this same theology, it really did shape the early years of the history of our own country, and so he had an effect upon Western civilization, not necessarily directly, but kind of an ongoing influence that eventually uh, brought this about. Uh, he had an individual, uh, you can see his picture here, by the name of Philip Melanchthon, uh, that, um, that became kind of the basis of Lutheranism. Uh, he drafted what is called the Augsburg Confession, and Lutheran priests and theologians, and notice what I'm saying, a lot of the same language is being used for the uh, for the church hierarchy. Uh, priests, Lutherans have priests. Now, they will be different than Catholic priests, but at the same time, they're still using a lot of the same titles and so forth. Luther, um, as he aged, got a little bit I don't want, how do I want to say this? He got cranky. And he was an individual that began to see that the Reformation was going to go in different directions. Again, remember, he wanted to reform the Catholic Church, not necessarily break away from it. And what we're going to see in especially Anglicanism and within Anabaptists, um, they're going to take the church in a whole different direction. It's not going to really look the same uh, as it does in Catholicism and Lutheranism and Presbyterianism. So um, what will happen is Luther gets a little bit cranky and he begins to denounce other reformers um, because they don't see things exactly the same way that he does. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So uh, you might have heard also uh, about um, um, how Luther, uh, he left the monastery. Uh, he was 
he actually found a wife by the name of Catherine that he married. And so now he's starting to set the, the church in, in different directions, from celibacy to marriage. A lot of different things are happening with Martin Luther. Now we're going to turn our attention to a group you might not know a lot about, but they are very influential. They're called the Anabaptists. And um, here you're going to see uh, on this map again that I showed you a moment ago uh, that uh, between 1525 and 1550, so I mean, it's only 25 years, how far some of these groupings of Anabaptists take place. Look at the red areas here that have high density uh, Anabaptist communities. So you might ask the question, well, what, what are Anabaptists? Well, uh, Anabaptists are a group of people that really emphasized discipleship, and they felt that one of the best expressions of discipleship was to have um, a baptism uh, with full participation and knowledge, which meant uh, the baptism of infants, that was something done to the infant. That wasn't their choice. Uh, and so they they believe in what is often called, you know, believer's baptism, that an individual is consciously making a choice to want to be a follower of Christ. They will be individuals that will become the forerunners of, notice these groups right here, Mennonites, Quakers, Baptists, and Congregationalists. Uh, Congregationalists, uh, there's a good many uh, New England-type churches that were Congregationalist churches. Um even the Swiss Brethren were influenced by the Anabaptists. But they had a unique perspective. So if Catholicism was the blending of church and state, and Lutheranism, uh, um, you know, there's still some of that going on. Anabaptists believed in complete separation of church and state. And with that uh, came the way they looked at who they were going to uh, be in allegiance to. And uh, so they believed that the scriptures did not teach a blending of church and state, that the church was to be a light uh, and salt in the world. And um, they wanted to restore what uh, could be called apostolic Christianity, those beginning years of the church when the apostles were establishing various churches, and you had um, smaller communities that met in homes, you had smaller communities that were trying to live out the teachings of Jesus. Going all the way back uh, to almost the beginning of this study, don't forget what, of what I said, that um, the church kind of changed from the teachings of Jesus to the teachings about Jesus, Okay. And that kind of took the turn. Anabaptists kind of wanted to get back to uh, the teachings of Christ. You'll see a couple of unique things about them. Uh, they refused to be a part of worldly power. Uh, they did not take up arms, which means they would not serve in the military. Um, they didn't believe in holding political office. And they didn't believe that they should have to take an oath. Uh, and 
So these three things are, well, four with the rebaptism, Anabaptist, Anna meaning being rebaptized. So what they were, um, what they were talking about is, um, it's okay if you were baptized as an infant, but you should be rebaptized as an adult, making a conscious decision. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so pretty influential group uh, in a short amount of time that kind of lingers on in some of the belief systems in some of these groups, some of them more extreme than others, Mennonites, Quakers, uh, in comparison to Baptists and so forth. But okay, now we turn to John Calvin. Here's a uh, an image that represents John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin grew up in Paris, and he was an individual that um, uh, was very dedicated as an individual in in wanting to reform Catholicism, just like Martin Luther did. Now, there's a pretty considerable time gap that you're going to see between Martin Luther and John Calvin, um, almost 100 years difference. I might say that you had hints of Reformation um, even before Luther and Calvin, but these are the instrumental individuals. So what happens is John Calvin, as a young man, he makes his way first to Basel for study over in Switzerland, and eventually he is compelled to go to Geneva, Switzerland. Now, Geneva had all kinds of different factions that was taking place. And um, it was also an area that was known kind of be, as being a licentious type of uh, area. And so um, Calvin is going to dedicate his cause to trying to reform first the city of Geneva, Switzerland. Um, he forms kind of the third wave of Reformation. So the first being Lutheranism, the second being Anabaptist, the third being Calvinism. Now you'll you'll find Calvinism and that uh, theological system primarily found in Presbyterian churches. However, um, Dutch Reformed and German Reformed churches will uh, have are have a link to Calvin as well. So Calvin is going in. Initially, he wanted to be a reformer. And um, he is an individual that uh, was a lawyer. That's what he studied to be, was a lawyer. Now, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Luther uh, was uh, primarily motivated by the study of law. And I think, this is my opinion, I think he superimposes kind of that legal mindset on the scriptures in various places. And so you're going to find this very, oh gosh, this very authoritative approach to who God is and what he is like and those type of things. So Reformation, Reformed Rule, uh, is found in Calvin. The meaning of Reformed Christianity is shaped by one dominant thing. And the one dominant thing that it's shaped by is the sovereignty of God. So the sovereignty of God, meaning God is all-powerful, 
and he can do what he wants to do and he doesn't ask your permission okay so he he's in switzerland he take uh he is in basel at first and he publishes an edition he was a prolific writer he publishes what is called the institutes of the christian religion i don't know if you've ever heard of that or not it is a massive amount of writing and it begins to really define some of the logic and theology of protestantism during the reformation age uh he will work on that and he will uh, refine it and he'll publish even a larger work 20 years later that's called the institutes but his work is primarily focused on the sovereignty of God is the dominant attribute of God. In other words, everything else, love of God, compassion of God, everything else comes under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. And um, that leads to a system that I'll, I'll talk about at the bottom of this slide. So here's another map for you to look at real quick. So this is basically the Calvinistic world. He starts out in France, and he eventually makes his way over to Geneva, Switzerland. Up here is Basel. Uh, but he will have an influence uh, of even up into Germany uh, as well. There's some similarity between uh, Lutheranism and uh, Calvinism as well. But um, G Geneva was kind of, not an end in and of itself, as you can see on the slide. Uh, he uh, he he used Geneva as kind of a area of refuge for uh, Protestants that were being persecuted by the Catholic Church. If they wanted to find some type of refuge, they could find it in Geneva. And so there were people that started to come study under him in Geneva, and these students came from all over different places in Europe. And again, he taught them about the sovereignty of God, that God asserts his um, omnipotence. Um, and uh, he even decrees from all of eternity by his own power, because sovereignty is, is dominant, what he wants. And people do not have a choice in the matter. Well, he develops this thing called predestination, and he will talk about predestination as the highest expression of God's sovereignty. So um, predestination basically says God chooses whom he wants to save, and he condemns who he wants to condemn. So even in eternity past, uh, before anyone is created, he chooses certain people that are going to be his elect. That's a key word. They're elect people that um, are, are given this gift of salvation through election, not by their own free will and not by their own choice. So what that means is um, he will develop a system of theology 
that basically because he emphasizes the sovereignty of God, that means no pope, no king has absolute power. They're all subject to God's sovereignty. So that's going to get under the skin, obviously, of um, those that hold power. But I think where it really comes down for us is that he chose to interpret certain things in such a way that as a result of this, um, there, the summation of his theology can be defined as tulip. Has anybody ever heard that term, tulip? Okay, T-U-L-I-P. And it's an acrostic that stands for five key elements of his belief system. But before I t tell you about that, um, let me let me read for you kind of a, a verse that he would depend upon to develop this system. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That will become the basis of this uh, system of thought uh, here. He believes mankind is totally depraved. So even before a baby draws their first breath, they are already condemned in the eyes of God as sinners. Secondly, unconditional election says some babies will go to hell, some babies will go to heaven, depends upon whether they have been chosen or not. He believed in what was called limited atonement. That is, Christ did not die for the sins of the world. He just died for the sins of the elect, the privileged group. He believed in irresistible grace. And that is, those who are chosen by God will eventually be chased down by God through the Holy Spirit, and they cannot refuse salvation, uh, that they will eventually turn their heart to God because they're one of the elect. And then lastly, he believes that a true person that has been chosen by God will persevere uh, to the end of their life being a dedicated worshiper of Almighty God, that they won't fall away, um, that they will be individuals that will stick with it to the end. Now, I don't think you probably know how much influence this has in the United States. I mentioned the Puritans uh, a moment ago, but there's still a lot of Reformed theology uh, in different churches around the country. And uh, some of them um, are individuals that are, are quite well known. So Parkside Church is a Reformed church. Uh, Alistair Begg is um, a, a dedicated Calvinist. Um, uh, if you ever visit Parkside Church and you walk into their library, which I did on one occasion, all of their books are Reformed theology. All of their books are those authors who uh, believe in uh, Reformed theology, as I tried to explain it simply here. 
on this slide. But let me stop there and see, you know, some Presbyterian churches really stress uh, the uh, election. Uh, some ha have become not as dedicated to that system, but they're still Presbyterian. So there's all kinds of different Presbyterians. There's all kinds of different Lutherans. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about how Methodism starts, or not next week, but in two weeks. Um, we'll see that there's all kinds of different Methodists uh, as well. And we're seeing this type of thing happen around us. Like right now, the Methodist church is splitting right down the middle over the LGBTQ issue. And, uh, you know, those that are staying uh, uh, it, within the church and are accepting of LGBT are United Methodist. And those who are saying no are breaking away and you're, you're starting to see uh, global Methodists starting to emerge. And so that, I only say that now because those are the type of things that happen over and over and over again in these different denominations. You have breakaways. So a Missouri Synod Lutheran is very different than other types of Lutherans. So um, some of them are more legalistic than others and so on and so forth. So you cannot throw any denomination into simply one category because what happens over the course of our own history as a nation is there's all kinds of different shades and modifications and emphases in these different denominations. Okay, do you have some thoughts? Can I clarify anything on that? The, the church we go to in Columbus is a Lutheran church. And apparently, a couple of years before we got there, they had the big split. And you know, I guess it used to be really, really full. Now it's still pretty full, but um, they must have lost 200 people. The, what was the, the issue, Shelley? The LGBT. Oh, the LGBT. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So did did most of the people stay or did most of the people leave? Do you know? I think it was probably 50 50. Oh, uh, and, you know, there's were definitely enough places to absorb the ones that left in Columbus because it's mm -hmm. quite evangelical. Uh -huh. Yeah. Down yeah. there. That's interesting. What year did this happen, Shelley? Do you have any idea? Well, we first, we heard about it when we got there. That was last year. So I would say probably maybe 20, maybe probably just before COVID, okay. I would bet. So more recently than going all the way back to the Marriage Amendment Act, the Equal, uh, equal uh, 2016 in 2016 when that when when you know when i left erie side but um yeah. so i would have later. to ask but it hasn't been long at all from from what i've heard oh bud's saying maybe five years okay hmm. interesting yeah that's interesting bud i thought i heard you saying something as well did you were you gonna say something he, I don't think people are priests, though, are they? No, they're not. Our, our guys are not priests. See, again, you have developments that take place. So 
there's different types of developments happening in the denominations. So there will be different denominations now that will call their leader pastor, obviously, rather than than priest. But at least they do. At least, at least initially in the Reformation, you don't see as much of that distinction because it's coming out of Catholicism. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. okay. All right. Yeah, I was in the Missouri. Well, I grew up in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. Mm -hmm. It was very, very conservative. And like every, like every year, like the last Sunday in October was the Reformation Sunday. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a, you know, big thing about Martin Luther. And I remember as a little kid, we went down to public hall and all the Lutherans from the area came and we had a big service down there mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. And do you remember, Beth, how they were organized? Like um, different churches have uh, synods or presbyteries. Or... They were in the synod, Missouri Synod. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they were the conservative branch. Now my great aunt that lived in Tiffin, Ohio, she was in the American Lutheran Church, was, was a little less conservative. I mean, it was still conservative, yeah. but not as the Missouri Synod. Right. They were really something. Well, I think you have that within all different types of denominations. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you... You have uh, you you have smatterings of differences within any denomination, really, that you can think of. Uh, yeah. It just seems to be human nature that there's these splinterings that go on. And okay, then when I was at Friends Church, they were kind of like the um, well, where was it? We went the Mennonite. They had Mennonite influences, I think, initially. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they, there's some, they couldn't, um, oh, like, you couldn't bear arms. Mm -hmm. You couldn't take an oath. If you went to court, you had to take another kind of, say something else. You couldn't mm -hmm. say, I swear, you know, to tell the truth. You couldn't yeah. say that. You had to say something else. And then a couple of the men that were in the church, had been in the army and they they didn't bear arms, but one served as a, a medic or something else in there, you know. Yeah. And they didn't want you going to movies. They didn't want single people dancing, which was crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I that was well, all that. All of that is still kind of residue from from that Anabaptist um, mm -hmm. uh, approach that began to filter down. Actually, your dad really. Uh, was Anabaptist, right, Esty? Yeah. So, well, he was Baptist, but I had he was influenced by Anabaptist, yeah, theology, right? Yeah, and he was drafted into the uh, Second World War at the age of seventeen, and he refused to carry a gun, and he was uh, he was he has a trade of a tailor, so they just had him taking his sewing machine along, and he never carried a gun because he refused to. And mm -hmm. at the age of 17, he went through Second World War with not bearing arms. 
It's mending soldiers' uniforms. Mending uniforms so they had things to wear. Yeah. So it's interesting, uh, some of the, the different influences that uh, continued to, you know, come down even to our own day and age. Let me finish up Calvinism real quick here. So Calvinism actually um, uh, migrated north into Scotland, and um, it, it became a very Calvinistic um, area of uh, Protestantism. And uh, there's a guy by the name of John Knox. Here's a portrait of what he look like that was an activist up in Scotland. Now, what's interesting about uh, him, um, I think we've heard of different names at, on occasion. Uh, I think uh, most of us have heard of Bloody Mary, right? Um, she was the daughter of Henry VIII. He was forced to flee uh, when there, there's this ongoing back and forth between uh, Catholicism and Protestantism, and it depended who was on the throne. And um, in the case of Bloody Mary, um, uh, Knox fled, and uh, he escaped to Scotland. And that's where a lot of the um, Calvinism grew in that area of Scotland was through John Knox. Um, he, by uh, you can see here, by 16, 15, 16, uh, Calvinists were in control of Edinburgh, uh, and uh, and they abolished Roman Catholicism. Um, and the reason I included him in in tonight's study is Bloody Mary and John Knox kind of symbolized the war between Protestants and Catholics. And you know, until not too too long ago, even in areas of Ireland. Protestant and Catholics still hated each other, and there was constant conflict between them and stuff like that. So it's interesting how some of these things continue to filter down into our own histories. Was he a contemporary of Calvin, or was it after Calvin, John Knox? Um, you know, I don't have an exact date on him. I think he he is kind of, he was influenced by Calvin. Uh, I'd have to look that up. So it was 1560 here and 1528 for Calvin. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was like 30 years later. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. All right, let's keep going. We're going to have uh, just a couple more influences and then uh, we'll be done for tonight. So... Uh, now, the another influence from the Reformation was Anglicanism. Now, that's the Church of England. Now, you want to talk about an area that constantly was like a ping-pong match between uh, Catholicism and Protestantism. England was um, influenced by both, depending upon who was on the throne. Now, what's interesting, here is a picture of uh, Anne Boleyn. Now, a little bit of um, background here. Um, what we see in the English Reformation is that um, it will become the backdrop to a lot of the Anglo-American denominations. So there's still that influence there. England does break with from Rome, and Henry VIII... Um, uh, desired 
to have this woman, <laughs> this is supposedly a drawing of her, as his wife. And there's a reason for it. Henry VIII was married to uh, his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and she was unable to give him a son uh, that uh, would carry on uh, the dynasty. Um, and so he, he appealed to the Pope to give him an opportunity to um, to get divorced from Catherine uh, so that he could marry uh, this woman, Anne Boleyn. Uh, the Pope refused. And so he is going to break from Catholicism because they wouldn't grant him the dispensation to have a divorce and get remarried. Well, his motivation was as much political as it was maybe romantic. Um, he he really wanted an heir. He wanted a son. And that was um, one of the primary motivations. But in 1527, uh, this is when uh, Henry asked the Pope for this special permission. And the Pope refuses. He has his own reasons. But Henry goes ahead and secretly marries Anne in 1533. So the Pope's going to excommunicate the king, okay? okay. Uh, so now there's this schism that's beginning to take place between um, the church and the state. Here you can see in 1534, England broke from Catholicism and created its own national church, which becomes Anglicanism. But the mm -hmm. king is at the head of the church, at least initially. And um, even though privately... Uh, Henry still he held to a lot of the Catholic doctrines, but he wanted to break from the Catholic Church for his own purposes. That's why Anglicanism still looks a lot like Catholicism in some ways. A lot of the high liturgy uh, and even some of the titles of the offices uh, that are in Anglicanism still has uh, some connections to Catholicism. The one thing that Henry did, though, that uh, is interesting is that he orders that an English Bible uh, be installed in the churches uh, that they that they would be in the in the pews, and uh, this will tie back to William Tyndale's uh, English translation. Uh, Tyndale, who worked feverishly on translating the Bible into English. Um, he uh, it was initially resisted uh, by the Catholic Church, and um, when Catholicism was still kind of in power, uh, Tyndale tried to smuggle English uh, translations into England, and he would eventually be condemned, and um, he would be in prison for 17 months before uh, they executed him. Uh, he would be burned at the stake, and and on his dying, uh, uh, on his dying deathbed, he he prayed this prayer: "Lord, open the King of England's eyes." That was his prayer that the King of England would open his eyes. And here we see uh, that is really what kind of comes about with uh, Henry the Eighth when he actually places English Bibles into the um, Anglican churches. 
So what we're seeing basically is different areas of Europe are swinging to Protestantism. Uh, some other backgrounds here that are important uh, in relationship to England uh, is a guy by the name of Thomas Cranmer. He wrote what is called the Book of Common Prayer. Has anybody ever heard of the Book of Common Prayer? So in 1553, he produces 42 different articles that is defining the faith more along Protestant lines. Um, that too will come to an abrupt halt uh, when Mary ascends the throne as a devout Catholic, and she um, actually executes 300 Protestants, including Archbishop Cranmer, uh, to the stake. There was a man that was looking on that uh, was observing all of the bloodshed uh, produced by Bloody Mary. His name was John Fox, and he recorded in detail the death of some of these uh, martyrs. In 1571, he he published a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody ever heard of that? Fox's Book of Martyrs? So these are accounts of, of these persecutions that are going on. Um, a little bit later, Elizabeth I comes to the throne, um, and she is the one that kind of chooses kind of a middle way, that it's not going to be fully Protestant or fully Catholic. We're going to find a middle way, and that's kind of why the liturgy of the Anglican Church kind of looks the way that it does. So any thoughts there? Now, believe it or not, from the Reformation also came a Catholic Reformation. We might not think of it in those terms. We think of the Reformation breaking away from Catholicism. But actually, Catholicism also took up some reforms themselves. And, um, and one of the individuals that was very substantial in trying to create a new order of Catholicism was, his name was Ignatius Loyola, and he started what has come to be known as the Jesuits. Have you ever heard of the Jesuits? Um, this, this was also called the Society of Jesus, and that was a way of trying to reform the Catholic Church enough to try to push back on Protestant advances. Ignatius, uh, St. Ignatius, as in the high school in Greater Cleveland, um, uh, used what was called spiritual exercises and really stressed meditation. So those who were part of the Jesuit order would often meditate for four weeks on these four different subjects, sin, death, judgment, and hell. Very kind of a real negative <laughs> set of subjects there. Uh, but that was the basis of their spirituality. Uh, Pope Paul III in 1540 approves the Society of Jesus as a religious order, a part of the Roman Catholic Church. And, um, and this influence of the Jesuits, along with uh, Pope, uh, several popes, really, they, they call together... Um, a, another council, not an individual council, but uh, a series of assemblies, 25 of them between 1545 and 1563 in Trento, Italy. And that's why it's called the Council of Trent. 
And its basic job was trying to issue condemnations of what they defined as heresy that was being done within the Protestant breakaway from the Catholic Church. So there's all these reforms that are going on, and these reforms um, will go in different directions. And that's the big takeaway tonight, is when we think of the Reformation, don't just think of it as Protestant and Catholic. I mean, it, it yeah, that's at the core of it, but it then becomes Lutheranism, Calvinism, Presbyterianism. It becomes Anabaptist. It just, it you know, branches out in a variety of different ways. All right. So that brings us now to kind of our own shores um, for a moment. So a subset of, uh, of Reformed theology was Puritanism. So in 1630, there were 400 immigrants that uh, gathered at Southampton, England to sail to the New World. And there was a guy by the name of John Cotton that preached a sermon. And the analogy that he drew was that we are the new Israel, um, that these immigrants are going to be like the ancient Israel's, uh, Israelites looking for a land where they would be undisturbed and they could live their lives to the glory of God. That would bring eventually bring them uh, to the shores of our country. They emphasized several things. They emphasized the Bible. Uh, they emphasized that they were the covenant people of God carrying on God's work in the world and that they had a divine mission to be salt and light in the world and uh, the, and to expand that. Now, when we think of Puritanism, though, most of the time what we think of is hyper-religious person that could be filled with a lot of self-righteousness and repression with, uh, as I put here, with the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. <laughs> they were a very negative bunch. They really were. Um a lot of the imagery that we see from uh, the early days of our country uh, can be tied a little bit to the Puritan influence in the uh, initial years of our country. Why did they come? Uh, they came because they were in conflict, again, with those in, uh, in, in power in England. Um, the long reign of Queen Elizabeth comes to an end, and there's a guy by the name of King James I that comes to the throne. Uh, the Puritans try to bid King James to make ch uh, changes to the Church of England. Changes had already been made, but they wanted the Church of England to look like um, they, they uh, wanted the church to look. And so they will set sail uh, for uh, the United States to start over again, basically. But King James comes to the first, even though he doesn't listen to the Puritans. One of the things that he does choose to do is um, create a new English translation of the Bible. And this is where the King James version of the Bible comes from. So take a look at this uh, graphic I have here. That's what uh, the initial King James um, uh, Bible looked like in Old English. Uh, you can see we would be we would have difficulty, even though this is English, um, it, it's difficult to read it because it's Old English. 
Uh, you can see different spelling of different words and stuff like that. So when we hear people sometimes say uh, the King James Bible is the best Bible, what they're talking about is really a more modern translation of the King James Bible. Even this had to be updated from its initial publication. So 1611, that's the big date. Um, what we find is that um, the work of Tyndale that uh, published the first English New Testament in 1526, after all this turbulation that uh, was taking place in England, uh, there were different English Bibles that were already in existence. Here they are. There were three of them. The Bishop's Bible, which is what the Church of England used, the Geneva Bible, i.e. Switzerland, that uh, the Reformed Protestants up there used, and the Reims New Testament, which was a Roman Catholic English translation. Well, King James said, we're going to set out a translation that's going to be the standard bearer for English translation. So what he did is he appointed, appointed six committees, 54 different scholars, to prepare this translation. Um, he used previous English translation work. He also used Hebrew, Greek, and Latin texts as a way of compiling the King James Version. And different people have different feelings about the King James Bible. Um, it is certainly one of the most poetic translations in English. Uh, there's no doubt about it. The problem is the verbiage that is used is outdated, and uh, you can read it, and it uses language that we don't use anymore, and let alone know what the definition of some of those words are. So anyways, I've said this often, uh, and as we wind down tonight, um, there will always be more uh, new translations that will never go away because language always changes. And as long as language is always changing, there will be a need, usually within another generation or two, for a new translation. So now we have NIV, new NIV, uh, Revised Standard Version, American Standard Version, New American Standard Version. I, the list could go on. There's dozens of them. Um, and each take different approaches. But this was a standard bearer for a long, long time, the King James Bible. And uh, like I said, depending upon what church you go to, um, it, it, many of them still think that that's the only translation. There's an old joke that goes around. If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us, right? <laughs> that type of thing. But the, the idea is that's the only translation we trust. You know, there's some problems with that. But anyways, there's still some of those type of groups around. One last slide, and then I'm done tonight. So out of this also comes what is called the Westminster Confession. Westminster Confession is a group of theologians that gathered from 1643 to 1653 to restructure the Church of England, 10 years. Uh, and the purpose was, um, uh, and there were Puritan clergymen that participated in this uh, to provide the type of documentation for the way the Church of England was going to uh, conduct its services. The Westminster Confession of Faith 
is a reformed confession of faith uh, of Calvinistic theology, basically. But it it gets quite extreme. I think our most um, our uh, some of the most popular things that we hear from the Westminster Confession of Faith is this this one. I'm, you might have heard. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Have any of you heard that phrase? The chief yeah. end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That comes out of the Westminster Confession of Faith. But I want you to notice down here, some of the things that they did in this confession is quite interesting. They state that the Pope is the Antichrist in the confession. And that was a very common belief in the 17th century in England. Uh, they believed that the mass was a form of idolatry. Uh, they thought that civil magistrates have divine authority to punish heresy. Again, you could you could run with this and see all kinds of really bad stories on uh, the use of violence uh, in in trying to kind of push back on heresy and that type of thing. And then they were pretty heavy on. Uh, Christians only marrying other Christians, that it's out of bounds to be married to a non-Christian. It's a pretty lengthy document, so there's a lot of stuff in it, but that kind of hits the highlights. So that's what I have for uh, this time tonight uh, together. Is there anything you want to say, um, questions or comments or clarifications or anything like that? If not, um, very interesting. I think when you kind of see the big picture, you see how some things begin to fit. You know what I'm saying? Why why are some things the way they are, and some pieces start to fall in place? I think when you get a big picture of it. So yeah. So, all right. Well, we'll not have a study next Wednesday night. Um, and we'll be back two weeks from tonight. We'll pick up the next era. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Sounds good. Have a good night, everybody. Have a good Bye. night. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.